This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the March 31st, 1942 episode of NBC's News of the World, with updates on the war from London on the Indian Front and the war in Europe, and from New Zealand on the Pacific War, with additional updates from New York and Washington. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, for the latest news of the war from our staff members on the scene, we're going to take you first this morning to Great Britain as our reporter comes in from London. Go ahead now, London. This is London, John McVeigh speaking. Dispatches reaching London from New Delhi today predict that the Indian Congress leaders will turn down the British proposals. They say Congress insists that control of the defense of India be handed over to an Indian, and Gandhi and Nehru are reported against the British plan. The Stafford Crypt is quoted today as reiterating his statement that no change would be made in the defense portfolio. If the Congress leaders fail to respond to the British offer and attempt to quibble about who's going to hold the hose while the house is burning down, it'll be a big disappointment to the British. All sections of opinion here believe the government has made a frank and sincere proposition to the Indians that give them everything they've been asking for years. The Indian question is an involved and difficult one. What the British have done at one stroke is to blueprint the way to nationhood for the nations, peoples, and sects of India and say, if you're really sincere about wanting to become an independent and self-governing nation, there's your chance. A communique just received from Burma says that the Chinese forces in Tonggu have joined up with other Chinese forces north and east of that point, and have re-established the position in the area. I heard the British naval officer who came back from the San Jose raid and yesterday told correspondents all about it. He was a young-looking man, and he talked about the raid in brief sentences, that gave only a slight indication of what he must felt about the felt about the exploit. Only twice did his feelings break through his reserve. Once when he praised Lieutenant Commander Beatty, the man who jammed the destroyer against the dark gate. And again when we were asking him about the German fire turned on the British raiders. He said, it was more than I'd ever dreamed of. And then you knew what it must have been like for the Britishers to see those streams of German tracer bullets flashing through the night from all sides and all angles. He felt the raid was a success, and he said the photograph showed the destruction of the dark gate. That means the main objective was accomplished, and if the tip it gets into the Atlantic and is damaged, she'll have to go all the way back to Germany for repairs, because she won't be able to use the big San Jose dry dock for probably about a year. I've been talking with a Frenchman who's just arrived here from France. He's been traveling a great deal in all parts of both the unoccupied and the occupied area. He was in Brest during one of the British air raids on the Charnost and Kneisenau. He says the people of that much-bombed town honestly welcomed the British raid. 
This Frenchman saw people flock to the roofs during the raid to flash signals to the British bombers, knowing that they were in the target area. When some bombs fell in the Brest Hospital one night, every Frenchman in the town was convinced the Germans had done the bombing as a reprisal against the town folks' enthusiasm for the British. He had an interesting explanation for the Rion trials that backfired. In his opinion, the Germans didn't want the trials to be held in the first place, but Vichy is full of cliques. One of the most influential is represented by the Royalist group, led by the well-known French editor Charles Morat. This group still see life through 18th century eyes, and they naively thought that liberalism, free thought, democracy, the whole development of France since the revolution, could be tried and condemned. This is John McBain in London, returning you to New York. We have a dispatch from Leningrad here in New York that tells us that the Red Army is smashing through an important Nazi position in that siege ring around the second most important Russian city. The Russians say that Hitler's men made a quick assault in an effort to retake the strategic point, but that they were thrown back, leaving 50 Nazis dead on the field. And all up and down the long front yesterday, the Red Air Force shot down 25 German planes. Russian losses are put at 12. Well, now the indications are today that the Vichy government is closing down its war guilt trials at Rium through dissatisfaction with the type of evidence disclosed. The trials have been ordered suspended on April the 2nd. And the Rome radio says that they'll be resumed at some later date in a manner more nearly conforming to what Marshal Pétain wishes to attain. Now it's recalled that Hitler has expressed disapproval of the evidence brought out in the examination of the former French leaders. And even Pétain was accused in testimony of being responsible for the lack of French fortifications. Vichy says officially that the trials will be resumed on April the 15th after Easter. From New Delhi in India comes word that the Japs and traitor Burmese have made another inroad into west-central Burma, but the enemy has penetrated to Shwedang at a cost of 300 casualties and 70 prisoners in heavy fighting with an Indian frontier force. Now, Shwedang is about 10 miles south of Prome, the gateway to Burma's oil fields. And now news of the Pacific Theater from our newsroom in San Francisco. And now from San Francisco, we take you to the Southwest Pacific. Go ahead, New Zealand. This is Mervyn K. Schlossberg, visiting from Wellington, New Zealand, 12, 6 a.m. The information of the Pacific War Council with headquarters in Washington, Prime Minister Fraser said this, quote, I am very pleased that the council is now in because that is what New Zealand has asked for since the outbreak of the war with Japan. We have consistently advocated the establishment of such a council Egypt. They have not been in action 
and occasional air activity over their lines caused more casualties. The German troops, which arrived from England over a year ago and were in Libya, are now at the base near Cairo for the fight to learn. The government has appointed one of the strongest parties in New Zealand industrial life with a three-ounce fraction in the position of direct mass production. This step has been taken, in the words of the National Supply, in order to stimulate the total production of New Zealand in the war effort. Mr. Jackson will be charged with the coordination of the manufacture of munitions and other war materials and with the fullest utilization of all of New Zealand's production activities. On the material side, these mean mainly imports from Australia and the United States, especially in steel. But the chief aspect is the use of manpower to the greatest extent. The defense minister, Mr. Jones, has announced the formation of the Defense Engineer Corps made up largely from the engineer branches of the civil departments and private persons, as a supplement to military engineer corps. While the corps will be part of the regular army, it will not be mobilized until an extreme emergency arises. While the Australian military chiefs and General MacArthur are studying the problems of Australian defense, a cautious Japanese advance of the Northern Valley in New Guinea has now been stopped due to heavy floods. One observer believes that the Japanese started their New Guinea campaign too late and were thus caught by the rain. Richard has pointed out that all the effects even after they cease, as the heavy soil of the country will make it extremely difficult for enemy planes to find landing places or bases. Perhaps in the next week or so, trouble will be obtainable in New Zealand only by presentation of a coupon, subject to registration with the local retailers. It is likely that other communities will be similarly rationed. In order to bring all units of the Home Guard up to strength, the government intends to issue orders making service in this branch of the National Military Organization compulsory for various classes. It should be noted that while our presence of Home Guard is on a part-time basis, in the event of emergency, it will be on a full-time footing. So far, New Zealand is in the New Zealand Air Force of the RAF have received almost 200 decorations, including the Victoria Cross. I now return you to San Francisco. From San Francisco, we take you now to Earl Godwin in the newsroom in Washington. And good morning, folks. You wouldn't really think it was a war, but a circus here in Washington. First thing the Price Boss Office has done this morning is to look shamefacedly at us and say it wasn't whiskers they were thinking of at all. It was grass. Because that impassioned broadcast I made about the one razor blade a week for the sake of our country was all wrong. But the price boss says there will be razor blades enough to go around. It was their mistake, not mine. They'll make more than two billion blades this year. But they will stop the manufacture of, guess what, lawnmowers after June 1st. You see, they got it all mixed up. The House of Representatives actually breaks out in a rash over that book on nudism by Maurice Parmalee, the head economist for Vice President Wallace's Board of Economic Warfare. I reported that to you yesterday. There was a hot debate for a short time, pro and con in the House, not on nudism particularly, but on dyes and on Parmalee. While the country seems to forget that the man on the spotlight today is almost, well, I would say he's 95% nudist in actual practice. 
I refer to India's Gandhi. It's getting be, to be such an old, old story in the news that it must all taste alike. But again, Washington news includes large sections of the unending fight for and against the 40-hour week. The situation today is just this. The administration will steadfastly oppose any and all changes in the law on the 40-hour week. Administration Senate leader Barkley typified this policy yesterday when he arose and threw back Texas Longhorn Senator Tom Connolly for a big loss because Connolly was up an atom with a demand to freeze labor conditions as they are, knock down the 40-hour week for the duration, and seize plants where labor trouble stops wartime production. Incidentally, there are no such troubles right now that I know of. Barclay answered Connolly, saying that stretching the work week from 40 to 48 or any other extension would be a pay cut for workers, and that the cost of living is up 15%. That's Mr. Barclay's statement. Incidentally, that's just what the Henderson price controllers were supposed to prevent, but don't. Barclay said that loss of overtime pay would result in labor demands for higher wages. That's probably true. Meantime... Not in the news at all, but undercover. An intelligent effort seems to, be made, seems to be going on to produce results, labor results, without enacting any of the drastic or radical anti-labor laws. The administration wants to bring about no strikes, better production, and no bitter politics. They seem to be in cahoots with labor leaders on that score, too. Labor leaders, that is. Labor leaders tell me that it was not labor but industry that suggested the double pay for holidays and Sundays, and that's out now. I'll venture one guess. First thing this House does when it gets back from the country where it's going out to learn things will be to pass a Senate bill which raises soldiers' pay, buck privates to 21, from 21 and $30 to $42 a month. And the Standard Oil's President Farish is due here today to tell the Senate's committee in nice Standard Oil language that Trust Buster Arnold was talking through his hat when he charged Standard with being more on Germany's side than on ours in the matter of synthetic rubber. President Roosevelt told the antitrust hounds to lay off businessmen for the duration. Big business, little business, no business can get up speed in production while their head men are in court or jail or in handcuffs. Fight first and prosecute afterwards is the new White House idea. Meantime, Senate and House will have bills today giving Donald Nelson, production boss, power to exempt industrial corporations from antitrust prosecutions. A trust-made tank can knock off the axis just as well as one made without benefit of the Department of Justice, and that's all from Washington at this time. Ladies and gentlemen, the report from the nation's capital ends this morning World News Roundup. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.